Good afternoon, I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome you here for the book forum on uh, how China became capitalist. Uh, China might not be totally capitalist now, but it's certainly moved a long way since 1978 uh, towards a market-oriented system. Uh, the authors, uh, Ronald Coase and Ning Wang, uh, are very, very knowledgeable. They have a lot of uh, primary sources that aren't av available elsewhere that they cite in the book, uh, so it's a, it's a really good read. Uh, Ronald Coase uh, is now 102. So he had a good excuse for not showing up today. Uh, but we do have a video with Ronald Coase in it. It's a short video. It's about three minutes that we'll show in a few minutes. Um, and uh, you'll get a chance to hear him. Uh, when the video was made, I guess he was, what, 101? So that's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, this, this book uh, makes a few fundamental points that haven't be, been made uh, elsewhere, at least not as significantly as it is in this book. Uh, China, of course, didn't make the transition from central planning to a market system by central edict. Uh, typically, it did so by experimentation and by what the authors call marginal revolutions. Uh, economists think in terms of the margin, small changes, not all or none changes. So if you can't get the perfect system, whatever that is, uh, you try to move in that direction. And they make a good case that China has been moving in that direction, although it may have slowed down uh, since the global financial crisis. Uh, uh, certainly their growth rate has slowed down somewhat. Uh, and that the reforms that have taken place, uh, the first reform being the formation of these uh, household responsibility system, which was uh, a movement uh, towards a more uh, responsible and individual-based uh, uh, farming model as, com as compared to the collective system or communal farms. Um, and also the establishment of these town, uh, TEVs, town village enterprises, which uh, rose up basically from the bottom up uh, all over the place, uh, small, small enterprises uh, producing things for the market uh, as opposed to under central planning. Uh, so this spontaneous or what some people call induced institutional change uh, is a key uh, item of the Chinese reforms that uh, many people uh, are not familiar with. Uh, China's future, the authors argue, depends on freedom of thought or what the authors call a free market for ideas. Uh, Ronald Coase came up with this idea a while ago on a market, uh, the market for ideas. Uh, Human capital uh, is very important. Gary Becker started a, a, a big literature on human capital. But the ideas that humans come up with are, are critical, especially with respect to institutions and experimentation on new ways of doing things and so forth. If you block that freedom of thought uh, through censorship and control of the internet and so on, uh, then you stifle uh, you know, uh, an important engine of economic development in the sense of creating new opportunities for individuals to make choices. Uh, they say that the main barrier to future growth in China uh, is basically this lack of freedom in the market for ideas. The Chinese communists hold on power, and information needs to be broken. 
uh, we've got a new uh, leadership coming in in China, and uh, nobody's exactly sure what they're going to do. Uh, but they certainly need to allow for a freer flow of information if they're going to become a global uh, capital market in China. Uh, social harmony is a term used often in China. Uh, and the authors would argue that that's best obtained by personal and economic freedom within a rule of law that protects persons and property, not by top-down uh, planning and control. Uh, so they also point to China's uh, cultural background, going back to Confucianism and so forth, and, and the importance they put on ideas and on scholarship. And uh, they argue basically that China needs to nourish a culture of competition in the market for ideas and return to its roots uh, and respect for wisdom. And uh, China will be much better off than the Chinese people uh, under that regime. Um, our first speaker today is, is Ning Wang, and I, I will give uh, the introductions of both speakers now, and then we'll go to the video, and then uh, Ning Wang will uh, give a summary of, of the book, and uh, Bert Kaidal, who's going to comment on it, will we'll spend about 10 minutes commenting, and then we'll allow the two authors to go back and forth a little bit for about another 10 minutes, and that will leave quite a bit of time for Q&A, and then we'll go up upstairs for lunch. Um, Ning Wang is assistant professor in the School of Global Studies at Arizona State University. He holds a PhD from the University of Chicago, where he worked with his co-author, Ronald Coase. His research interests lie in the interface between law, politics, economics, and society, uh, with a focus on international development. Uh, Ning grew up in a, a rice and fish farming village in south central uh, Hubei. Uh, and attended uh, Beijing University, which is perhaps China's most prestigious university. Uh, he's published three books, and his articles have appeared in scholarly journals, including the American Journal of Economics and Sociology, Politics and Society, uh, the Cambridge Journal of Economics and New Global Studies. Uh, our other speaker, uh, Bert Kaidel, who I've known for a long time, went to Japan together uh, a while ago. Uh, I think one of our colleagues there, Derek Mitchell, is now an ambassador. Uh, so, uh, Bert is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's a Asia program and an adjunct graduate professor at Georgetown University's uh, Public Policy Institute, where he teaches a course on the Chinese economy. Bert's fluent, by the way, not only in Chinese but Japanese, which is pretty impressive. Uh, his previous positions include acting director and deputy director of the Office of East Asian Nations at the U.S. Treasury where he was also the China desk officer. Uh, before joining the Treasury in 2001, uh, Bert covered China economic trends, system reforms, poverty, uh, and country risk as a senior economist in the World Bank uh, office in Beijing from 1997 to 2000. He's also been a senior associate in the China program at the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, Bert's written widely on the Chinese economy, uh, including recent articles on China's exchange rate uh, controversy and also on China's regional disparities in income and consumption. He holds a, a BA in International Affairs from Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School and a PhD in Economics from Harvard. Uh, it's a pleasure to have uh, both speakers here. And if we could run the video first, and then uh, Ning will speak. <laughs> We had a conference in 2008, 
we received a lot of you know high quality academic papers, but the papers were about specific questions. But the the overall process, like how China became capitalist, was not clear. So we started writing this book uh, in the hope to find some answers to the to the questions that remained. People had a, a wrong idea of what happened. Here was a country controlled by the Communist Party, which introduced the country to capitalism. This is not what you'd expect. Since 1978, it was regarded by the Chinese government as the, the start of reform. And if you go back to read that account, basically it says the Chinese government somehow magically designed this. Uh, and that's, you know, seemed to us not credible. And our account showed what we call the, it was the marginal revolutions that led to market forces and paved the way for market transformation in China. One of the marginal revolutions was the introduction of private farms. Previously, it's been collectives run by the government and gradually private farming was introduced in spite of the government. Private farming not only just emerged in that particular village in Anhui province, but was widespread in China before Beijing made that a policy. And uh, uh, so the reason why agricultural reform, that is private farming spread out so quickly, not because Beijing had a heavy hand be able to enforce that policy, but exactly because that practice was widespread long before the policy was enacted. That explained the success and the rapid uh, uh, spread out of private farming in China. It's important because people didn't think, think this was the way it happened. They thought of it as something controlled, set up by the Chinese government. And it wasn't. The concept that's very much derived from Professor Kuss's early work on the market for ideas. And I think we think that concept provides a better framework to think about the success and the failure of China's market transformation. And also provide a better framework to think about where China will be going next. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at Cato to share with you some thoughts about how China became capitalist. Uh, this is a, a small book, uh, barely over 200 pages, if not counting notes and uh, references. Uh, it contains an uh, extraordinary tale full of twists and, uh, and surprises. So uh, what I'm going to do next is to provide enough background information so that later we can have meaningful dialogue, particularly uh, since we have such a great technology today. Uh, 
it's, it's fair to say that no one has foreseen socialist modernization that the post-Mao Chinese government launched would in 30 years tend into what scholars today call China's great economic transformation. Um, how the actions of Chinese farmers, workers, scholars, policymakers coalesced into this unintended consequence was the story we tried to capture. Um, today, I don't need to present any statistical data to convince you the rise of the Chinese economy, even though China still faces enormous challenges ahead. Uh, most Chinese are still poor, and much, far fewer Chinese have access to clean water than to cell phones. Um, many Chinese still face a lot of hurdles in protecting their rights and exercising their freedom. But nonetheless, over the past 35 years, China has been transformed from the inside out. Uh, this transformation is the story of our time. And as Professor Coase, my co-author, puts it well, the struggle of China is the struggle of the world. Against the conventional uh, wisdom, we took the end of 1976 as the start of reform. And we argue that by the end of the 20th century, China basically became a market economy um, before it joined the WTO in 2001. Uh, in the new millennium, China was able to keep its growth momentum and became more integrated with the global economy. Uh, but as an account of how China became capitalist, uh, our book focused on the first two decades and a half of, of China's reform. Within that time frame, our account is split into two parts by a dividing event, the 1989 student movement. The first part of our story is a tale of two reforms. One was designed by Beijing. The goal was to revitalize the state sector and save socialism. The other resulted from grassroots initiatives. The state-led reform came in two phases. The first round of state-led reform started at the end of 1976 under Hua Guofeng. Hua was Mao's designated successor. He was able to consolidate his power base after arresting the Gang of Four and ending the Cultural Revolution. Hua was loyal to Mao, but he was an uh, economic modernizer. So with the support of Deng Xiaoping and other Chinese leaders, he started his economic program of modernization. Uh, essentially, uh, that was a state-led investment-driven program with a focus on heavy industry. Uh, later, that program was called or criticized as the leap outward. Uh, it's a typical example of what economists call big push industrialization. That program did not last long. It barely lasted over two years, and it's cut off in early 79, partly due to its own defects and partly due to leadership change um, since at the end of 1978, China, the, the Central Committee of the Party held a conference. Deng Xiaoping and Chen Yun came back to power. 
and Hua was no longer in charge. Um, Deng Xiaoping, of course, is widely known in the West. Uh, Professor Fogel of Harvard, his recent biography uh, documented in detail Deng's role in China's reform. But Chen Yun is a shadowy figure. Uh, but Chen himself was the top official in charge of economic affairs. He was the architect of China's first five-year plan and a strong believer in central planning. But he grew up and apprenticed in Shanghai before becoming a revolutionary. So he saw limited but vital role for market forces and private sector and socialism. He lost his position uh, when Mao started the Great Leap Forward in 1958, which he opposed. Uh, Chen Yun came back to power at the end of 78, along with Deng Xiaoping, and he was handed the job of designing an economic reform program. Chen believed basically that China's um, economy had long suffered structural imbalance, by which he meant that the heavy industry, so much emphasized uh, relative to light industry and agriculture, and state planning and uh, collective ownership stressed at the exclusion of the private sector and the markets. According to Chen, Hua Kofeng's economic program with the focus on heavy industry actually made the Chinese economy even worse. So that's the reason he cut off the, great, the leap outward against the strong opposition at that time from the state council and launched his economic program. That started the second round of the state-led reform. Um, that reform had two components, uh, adjustment at the macro level and enterprise reform at the micro level. So um, structural adjustment was imposed across the economy. For example, uh, investment was channeled from capital goods production to consumer goods production, more money was allocated to agriculture. Um, just in 79, the, state, the, the Chinese government raised the purchasing price for agricultural products by more than 20%. And also Chinese government uh, significantly increased grain import. Uh, also the Chinese government took uh, efforts to decentralize uh, foreign trade and gave more autonomy, physical autonomy, to provincial governments. At the micro level, the reform was squarely placed on uh, state-owned enterprises, which were regarded as the economic foundation of socialism. And what the Chinese government did was to uh, uh, dissolve more rights and to the state enterprises and give them more, uh, allow them to keep some of the profits. So since 1979 and throughout the 1980s, the Chinese government was busy uh, with uh, incentivizing the state-owned enterprises. So there's that's no doubt that the Chinese government pursued a series of reforms during the first decade of reform. Uh, but today, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the real economic forces 
that were transforming the Chinese economy during the first decade of reform were private farming, township and village enterprises, private business in cities, and the special economic zones. None of them was initiated from Beijing. They were marginal players operating outside the boundary of socialism. Beijing was happy to leave them alone as long as they did not threaten the state sector or challenge the political power. Uh, that created room for what we called marginal revolutions that brought back entrepreneurship and the market forces to China while the state government, or the Chinese government, was busy saving socialism. One such marginal revolution uh, is private farming. Of course, private farming is not new to China. Before 79, private farming had existed for millenniums. Uh, in the early 1950s, Mao tried ruthlessly to collectivize farming. And many Chinese, some Chinese peasants believed, believed in Mao and thought collectivization would provide a better way out of poverty. But after 20 years of collective farming, and after more than 40, many of them died in famine. They knew better. So they went back to private farming after Mao died, even though at the time when Beijing was still trying to beef up the commune system. Uh, later, the Chinese government would credit itself as launching agricultural reform. But the reform enacted by Beijing was merely to raise the purchasing price for agricultural products and increase grain import. Private farming, which really transformed Chinese agriculture and freed Chinese peasants, was not, uh, did, did not come from, from Beijing. Township and the village enterprises were industrial, oper industrial operations located in rural areas. They were the most dynamic sector in Chinese economy in the first two decades of reform. Uh, they operated outside state plan, so they did not have guaranteed access to raw materials controlled by the state. Instead, they had to pay a higher price at the black market for those uh, uh, inputs. And they did not have access to the state-controlled distribution, distribution system to sell their products. Instead, they had to hire their own sales teams to travel all over China to sell their products. In other words, they have to operate like real business firms. And that's exactly what they did. And it didn't take long for them to outperform state-owned enterprises, which enjoyed all the privileges and state protections that they simply stopped being enterprising. The first private businesses in Chinese cities uh, was started by people who did not have a job in the state sector. Many of them were returned youth from the countryside. As you know, during Mao's time, about 20 million Chinese uh, high school, middle school graduates in cities were sent down to, sent to the countryside, partly because the Chinese government could not create enough jobs. So after Mao died, they came back to Chinese cities, couldn't find a job, Soon they were young, jobless, and the rest of they took to the street, and some of them even blocked the railway in a, lot, in a number of Chinese cities. So that mounting pressure 
forced the Chinese government to allow uh, self-employment. And quickly, private shops uh, emerged in Chinese cities, and then they ended state monopoly of the urban economy. Among the four marginal revolutions, special economic zones were the most controversial. Uh, they were established to co-opt capitalism to save socialism. Uh, the idea was to allow them to experiment with the market economy, uh, importing advanced technology, managerial know-how, uh, selling goods to the global markets, uh, creating jobs, and stimulating the local economy. But all the experiments uh, were confined to, to a few enclaves and rigorously controlled so that they would not undermine socialism elsewhere. And if they failed, the damage to socialism would be negligible. Uh, so the presence of the two reforms uh, was a, a defining feature of China's transition. Uh, the failure to separate that two sources of reform uh, is a main source of confusion in the, in the literature. Uh, the Chinese government has understandably promulgated a state-centered account of reform, projecting itself as the omniscient designer and instigator of reform. Uh, the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has survived market reform, today still monopolizes political power, and remains active in the economy, certainly has helped to sell the state-centered account of reform. But it really, it was the marginal revolutions that brought entrepreneurship and the market forces back to China when the government was busy saving the state sector and the socialism. <coughs> the second part of our tale began in 92 after Deng Xiaoping's southern tour, um, where marginal revolutions brought market forces back to China in the, in the previous decade, regional competition became the transformative force in the Chinese economy in the second decade, turning China into a market economy by the end of the 20th century. Regional competition was not new. It existed in the first decade, but at that time, it created a lot of trade barriers at the provincial borders and fragmented the Chinese economy. China implemented uh, in 92 uh, price reform and then tax reform in 94 and then started to privatize state-owned enterprises in the mid-90s. Uh, Those reform measures paved the way for the rise of a common national market, which was able to discipline all economic actors in the economy. Uh, that uh, uh, allowed regional competition to become a transformative force in the, in the, in the economy. So here our account uh, differs from the one presented by Huang Yaxian in his book, 2008 book, uh, Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics. There he made a, a controversial argument that China was more capitalistic and entrepreneurial in the 1980s than in the 1990s. If the argument means that private entrepreneurship prevailed against the state in the 80s, it's in full accord with our account of marginal revolutions. But if it means that the Chinese economy 
was moving away from, from a free market economy in the 90s, I think it misses a, a fundamental change in the Chinese economy in the 1990s, which is the emergence of a common national market, which was a precondition uh, for, regional for regional competition to work. But identified with repetitive investment, regional competition is often faulted for uh, distorting uh, comparative advantage and hindering economies of scale uh, in the Chinese uh, literature. Uh, a more nuanced picture emerged in our account. What regional competition did was to translate China's advantage in space as a continental country into high speed of industrialization. How did that happen can be best seen from the Hayakian perspective, which stresses the growth of knowledge as the ultimate force driving economic change. In Mao's time, education was under attack and the knowledge itself became a political liability. Uh, China was isolated from the West and also China cut itself off from its own cultural roots. Mao's radical ideology impoverished the Chinese economy and even worse, closed the Chinese minds. After Mao died, China re-embraced uh, pragmatism, seeking truth from facts became the, new, uh, the party's new guideline, and the getting rich became glorious. Then the most restrictive constraint for economic development is the lack of knowledge. This included technical knowledge, knowledge about the institutions, and the local knowledge. Uh, the solution to this problem was found in regional competition. When China's 32 provinces 280 plus municipalities, 2,800 counties, 19,000 plus towns, and 15,000 plus villages threw themselves into open competition for investment and for good ideas of developing the local economy, China became a gigantic laboratory where many different economic experiments uh, were tried at the same time. Knowledge of all kinds was created, discovered, and diffused fast. So through the growth of knowledge, the enormous scale of Chinese industrialization made its rapid speed possible. Uh, given our account of how China became capitalist, what can we say? about capitalism that just emerged in China. A persisting feature of the Chinese market transformation is the lack of political liberalization. Uh, this is not to say that the Chinese political system has stood still over the past 35 years. The party has certainly distanced itself from radical ideology. It's no longer communist except in name and in recent years, the internet has empowered uh, the Chinese people to exercise their political voice. Nonetheless, China remains ruled by a single political party. This continuity hides a fundamental change in the Chinese political reality. Uh, with the death of Deng Xiaoping, politics, what we call the 
strongman politics was brought to a closure. Under Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and later Xi Jinping, China is no longer ruled by a single charismatic leader. So in that sense, Chinese politics is qualitatively different from the time of Mao and Deng. Um, but Chinese government has not come to terms with this political change. And there have been little efforts of institution building to prepare China for this changed political uh, uh, reality. But the, the combination of rapid economic development and seemingly unchanged politics has led many to characterize Chinese market economy as state-led authoritarian capitalism. And uh, so people ask the questions, when and how China going to embrace democracy and whether the party going to survive democratization. Uh, in the book, a different perspective is offered. Uh, it provides a different diagnosis of the flaw of Chinese market economy as is practiced today. That is, China has developed a robust market for goods, but still lacks a market for ideas. The market for ideas points to a different way of thinking about China's political future. Our reasoning is uh, mainly based on the following two considerations. First, multi-party competition does not work unless is cultivated and disciplined by a free market for ideas, without which democracy can be easily hijacked by interest groups and undermined by the tyranny of the majority. The performance of democracy critically depends on the market for ideas, just like privatization depends on the market for capital assets. Second, multi-party competition um, had virtually no precedent in Chinese history. Uh, indeed, the Chinese word uh, party, dang, itself has a very strong negative connotation in traditional Chinese thinking. Uh, forming a party and pursue its self-interests in Chinese, jie dang, yin si, has long been uh, criticized against the political ideal, which is what is under heaven is for all, as tian xia wei gong. So, but in contrast, the market for ideas has a deep and revered root in traditional Chinese thinking. Ever since the time of Confucius, uh, that 100 school of thought content has become a political ideal. Uh, so in our view, the market for ideas promises a more gradual but more viable approach to rebuilding Chinese politics and the principles of tolerance, justice, and humanity. Over the past 35 years, China has embraced capitalism not just in, in the economy. Uh, the theory of moral sentiments today has more than a dozen Chinese translations. And uh, the book has won the mind and heart of Premier Wen Jiabao. Uh, the message of, of Adam Smith resonates strongly with the Chinese, not least because the striking affinity uh, with the traditional Chinese thinking on economy and society. A surprising outcome of uh, China's transition to capitalism 
is that China found its way back to its cultural roots. Seeking truth from facts is a traditional Chinese thinking, which Deng Xiaoping mistakenly called the essence of Marxism. Uh, but many facts today remain hidden, covered in China, because China doesn't have a free market for ideas. Uh, but we are cautiously optimistic that China may well embrace the market for ideas in the decades to come, just like the way it embraced the market for goods. Uh, as our modern economy is more, becomes more and more knowledge-driven, the gains from free exchange of ideas is simply too great and the cost of suppressing it uh, are too high. So China's embracement of both its history and globalization leads us to believe that Chinese capitalism is going to be different. This is desirable not just for China, but for the West and everyone else. And it's certainly desirable for the global market economy. Today, Biodiversity is recognized as vital for sustaining our natural environments. Institutional diversity plays a similar role in keeping our human society resilient. Capitalism will be much more robust if it's not a monopoly of the West, but flourishes in societies with different cultures, different religions, different histories, and different political systems. Trade in the global markets for goods makes war too expensive to fight. A global market for ideas can accommodate and thrive on the clash of ideas, but steers us away from the clash of civilizations. Thank you. Well, I want to thank uh, Cato Institute and Jim Dorn in particular for bringing us together and congratulate uh, Professor Wong and Professor Coates for their, uh, their book. Uh, I've been, um, my daughter said to me, Daddy, when I read a book, you tell me not to dog ear the pages, and you're writing all over this thing. So I had to uh, tell her that, well, this is a different uh, kind of operation. This is the way I try to remember what I think is uh, relevant and, and valid. It, uh, it's been an extraordinary read, and I want to share with you uh, what I come away with from the book. Uh, the book is full of interesting details. If you really want to know a number of facts, relationships, who did what, when, uh, and many of them poorly known by the English readership outside China, uh, this book has a, a, a great collection. I mean, very few people knew that private farming after Mao first came at, at Pengxi County in the village of Nine Dragon Hill uh, because someone just decided we're going to do this. And uh, the story of how private plots evolved uh, before Mao in the 1950s and the early 1960s and how it uh, survived secretly uh, in, in the economy up until and, and after Mao's death. These are the really interesting kinds of data that if you fix them all together, you come away with quite a picture of what was going on in China in these years. The start of uh, special economic zones, uh, using China merchants, uh, which was an old pre-revolution uh, company, and how that then was set up in the, uh, in, in, in just in Guangdong in the south, and how that, again, uh, because somebody said, I think we can do this, let's try and pull it off, 
up and went and got uh, some permission to do it. Lots of, of details. Uh, and as I continued to read, I realized that I was getting confused by some definitions. So this is a, a second major point. For example, uh, the title of the book, How China Became Capitalist. Uh, my postgraduate training was at Tokyo National University, a uh, combination of neoclassical and Marxist economics. The UNO school uh, was in Tokyo at the time. And I wanted to learn how Marxists actually use these terms. And that has helped me talk with Chinese about some of these terms because it's quite different. Capitalism uh, has at least two definitions. One is the very common one that I think is behind this book, which is a free market economy in which uh, individuals and corporations have the freedom to pursue profits uh, in a democratically based society. That's the package that you get. But there's an older definition that I can find in, in dating back, say, to the 19th century. Uh, and here's one, political and economic system which encourages capitalists. So that it encourages the corporations and the people that want to make profit that way. And that is the distinction that the Chinese make and that Marxists make, that capitalism in that meaning involves power relationships. And power relationships in which those that have accumulated successful profits can then use them to turn around and influence the rules of how the market system works to their additional advantage and leads in the end, in their view, uh, to injustices, to poverty, and to a serious uh, range of uh, malfeasance that has to be fixed. And it's all directed at that meaning of capitalism. Uh, and so I find that in this book, I, I, that that meaning was honored and explained a bit. But then the language of the book shifted back and forth between the two meanings. And you had to think, well, now who, whose capitalism is this? And that usage shifts over into uh, the word socialism as well. And you get uh, the book describing what the Chinese see of socialism and how it's usually understood as central planning. Uh, but then when the book criticizes China's socialism, it uses the central planning definition more than the other one. So if you're going to buy this book, and by the way, it says it's $100, but I just heard from a, a professor at AU that you can get it here for 65 and that there's even a discount off that. So you know, you, I, if you want to go buy it right now, I can understand uh, the price break you'll get. Uh, but the, the idea that socialism uh, is a good word, as the Chinese say it, that it involves justice. It doesn't necessarily exclude markets. It has a whole wide range of views. And that Marxism even can mean seeking truth from facts, as the book mentions. But then the book says, but that's uh, clearly fallacious, clearly the wrong understanding of Marxism. And yet, uh, in my reading of Marx, and I had to read Gruntarissa and Das Kapital in Japanese when I was in Tokyo, uh, you get the idea that it says very little about uh, how a socialist state, in fact, there's, there's nothing about how a socialist state should operate. It's a criticism of the abuses of capitalism in the 19th century meaning of the word. So those uh, definitional distinctions uh, make the reading of the book a real intellectual challenge. You need to keep asking yourself, okay, whose view is this? And how do I use uh, the way the book is using it to understand better what's going on in the Chinese economy? So be careful about labels uh, and those shifting uses. Another very powerful idea in the book is the importance of seeking truth from facts. And this is a principle that the book notes uh, Hu Yabang promoted, uh, but that it came initially from Mao. But then in back, the, book, the book accurately goes back and says, but it's an old Chinese saying to seek truth from facts. Uh, and that these truths from facts <clears throat> became the essence uh, that undermined traditional socialism. So if 
you're going to get that this definitional problem if the Chinese actually think that uh, Marxism and socialism and communism don't necessarily mean central planning. They, seek, they mean doing what's practical to make the economy serve most of the people. You get a, a different view of truth from facts than, than you would get if you think, oh, well, that's ridiculous because socialism and so forth is always central planning. The Soviet idea, and I think the book points out rightly that many foreigners misunderstand the Chinese system of socialism as having come from the Soviet Union and replicated it, when in fact there was, there was very little similar between the two after the first five-year plan uh, in particular. And so I, I applaud the book's introduction of these various meanings of these, these terms. Uh, and I, I, but I have to say, and here is where I begin to uh, chew into this book, the many facts in the book that I've already said are quite interesting uh, are accompanied by generalizations about markets, about price systems, in a very kind of Hayekian way. Uh, and, and you have some marvelous statements that would fit right into a high school economic principles book about the beauty of an equilibrium and how then you, don't, you have information, everybody can act independently and, and do quite well. Uh, and let me just pull off one of these for you. In a market economy, the price mechanism coordinates the flow of resources within the economy, firstly by signaling the return of competing uses of resources to all economic actors, and then by allowing resources to move to their most profitable employment. The market is able to operate in this way because all firms are constrained by a common market discipline, and competition in the product market can lead to efficient utilization of the factors of production. That's, you know, hallelujah. That's market economic as it is taught. Uh, and it's it kind of dropped in like by a helicopter into what is a factual account of many complicated details in the Chinese economy. And you, you sort of say, well, okay, where did that come from? And does that really fit the facts that are in the book? And I came away saying, you know, it doesn't really fit the facts that come out in the book. The book kind of juxtaposes a whole range of facts with these helicoptered generalizations that get dropped in it about the beauty of the market. And so uh, I, I found myself saying, well, I've got to be pretty careful here as I read this, this book. To some degree, is the book contradicting its own facts? Is the book getting its truth from the facts? Uh, and so then I continued to look. And the book actually evolved in a very interesting way towards the last chapter. Uh, so that there are then these two major categories of themes that I want to introduce now in the book. Uh, the first is one that we've already heard described very well, that China was not a state-led economic reform. China's market transformation was not state-led. It bubbled up from the fringes of powerless parts of the economy that actually had their own inertia, despite the, the, the restrictions placed on, that, placed on them by the central government. And so you have to say that it happened without the knowledge or without the wish that, the, that these would happen, and that they then, however, demonstrated their superiority and then were adopted and claimed by the state as its own uh, solution. Uh, I think that uh, that whole idea of a marginal solution uh, is, quite, is, is quite interesting and quite uh, important. Again, I don't think that it follows from the facts in the book, and as I'll mention in a minute, uh, from some of the facts that are left out uh, in the book. But there is also a second set of themes, and this is the Chineseness of what happened in China. Its roots in Confucianism, uh, in practical solution, in looking for justice and freedom, and that this needs then to be the way we renew economics uh, today. And it has quite a strong critique 
of, of government role in economics or of economics as it's taught today. Uh, and I think that I, I, I found myself really quite uh, pleased with those remarks at the end of the book, working with Adam Smith, a theory of moral sentiments, and describing how happiness uh, depends on the expectations of people, and therefore the system needs not just to think about how does it produce things and distribute them, but what is it doing to prepare people to actually enjoy and, the, and, and take advantage of the things that are made available to them. Uh, therefore, I've, I've, I've made a, a strong statement here about the, the, the dropping in of sort of Hayekian notions of the price system cure-all for an economy. Uh, I think the facts also then uh, contradict the notion that the Chinese economy was not state-led. It wasn't led by far-sighted leaders who were using the political power of government to accomplish the market transformation that, in fact, occurred. Uh, and I would say that what happened instead, and this actually I, I was surprised to, to realize is kind of Hayekian, uh, that what they did was to create an environment particularly after Mao's death, but to the degree that they could, they tried to do it in the early 1960s, they tried to do it in preparations in 1956 for the second five-year plan, they tried to do it in, to some degree in the early 70s when after Nixon's visit, or even uh, Zhou Enlai had some ideas, was trying to push uh, coastal zones in 1970-71. They created a climate in which, oh yeah, no, you can't do that, but the word went out uh, from the party that you need to experiment, we are in a wholly different situation now that Mao is dead, and see what bubbled up. So that, no, there wasn't some zap of a finger coming down and saying, you do private farming over here and you do it over there. It was, let's, let's set it up and see where it happens. And then when it happened, it was allowed to spread and allowed to be celebrated. But the conditions, the environment that made that possible was generated and created and strengthened and encouraged by the reformers within the government. And so the book, uh, again goes back and forth. It often treats Beijing as Beijing and as just a consolidated political decision-making unit. And at other times you get the idea that reformers are working within the government to try to accomplish things that were despite the criticisms or the opposition of other elements in the government and the party uh, that were going to drag their feet or be able to knock you down if you went too fast. And so there is clearly an, an undulation in the process of the transformation of the Chinese economy, where things were tried until it was clear that the opposition was going to be too strong. And then you found a political movement, like in 1983 and in other situations, where you could come in with an anti-bourgeois liberalization campaign that made people, people feel comfortable again. And then you could continue with the reforms. But if you didn't reassure those who were worried that this was going too fast, you may have been stopped. And many people didn't understand the strength and the importance of that undulation of reassuring settling, calming things down, and then moving ahead with the next stage of reforms. And so, and I would say Hu Yabang didn't understand those. He tried to go too fast. And then he was fired because he didn't understand that process. The same was true of Zhao Ziyang. They tried to go too fast to push ideas that they thought would solve everything. But those that were actually uh, realizing the chaos that could come stifled that. And you had uh, then a, a calming period. And then reforms took off again. And this is not just in the political sphere, but the role of macroeconomic cycles in promoting economic reform is something that is critical and that I would say the book doesn't adequately uh, take account of. In fact, it treats an austerity program as if it were some ideological opposition to reform. Uh, 
And this brings me to the, the seminal part in the book played by Deng's Walk in the South, of those of you who know the Chinese economy that in early 1992, he went to visit this special economic zone in Shenzhen and said, this is great. If it's a black or white cat, I don't care. Uh, and the book says this is where reformers using Deng Xiaoping, they had the luck to have this man uh, to restart reforms. But then the details in the book, the facts, go back and undermine that the stock market in Shanghai had begun before that. And they didn't mention that the price reforms in grain that were so inflationary began in 1991. Uh, and you had a whole range of reforms uh, that were teed up, started. Some of them started in 1987-88, but then became too inflationary. And, and, you, and, and the inflation that led to Tiananmen and the, and, and the undermining of the subsidies of the urban uh, registered population, all of that made the price reform move at that point impossible. And so you had two years to, of austerity to stop the price reform, but then immediately those price reforms began again when it became economically and political, politically feasible to do it. So that there is an undulation politically, there's an undulation in the macro economy. In fact, I gave a paper in 1990 at a planning commission conference in Beijing uh, saying these cycles can be used in this way. And they were used in the late 1990s because they, after the inflationary surge from grain price reform, they had to slam on the brakes again, and you had a very serious recession that was in 1996-97. The state enterprises, because of this recession, had so much red ink flowing that even the workers could accept being laid off. The book doesn't really mention the Xiaogang movement, the effort of, of, of separation of workers in the late 1990s. By, by the year 2005, 50 million state workers had lost their state jobs. And so this process, again, was part of this undulation. And, and you have to say that the, the central authorities, and particularly those that were reform-oriented, knew what they were doing. And they knew they had to govern, they had to control, they had to manage this explosive process, uh, or else they would violate the expectations, particularly of the urban hukou, who had cradle-to-grave subsidies. And the hukou system, it's mentioned at the beginning and the end of the book as some sort of factual system. But as a coherent core part of the economic reforms, the hukou system isn't described or analyzed. And in fact, what happened in the 1880s is that the price reforms in the rural areas undermined the financial support for the subsidies in the cities. And that showed up as inflation. And the demonstrations in Tiananmen in 1989 were the seven sets of two sets of seven demands. The key thing was punish those that caused inflation. And I talked, I was there that whole May. I was doing a UNDP project for the Ministry of Agriculture. You talk to students and say, but you know, if you have democracy, uh, the peasants are 80% of the side. They're going to vote away your subsidies. And you'd have to stop. Oh. Yeah, but they're peasants. They don't have to vote. So there was, I, I think, the, the, the rigidity and the danger uh, of the inherited subsidies for this, this coddled part in the cities, the danger of that erupting and exploding and, and derailing the reforms is something that, in, in my analysis of this whole economic process, is critical to understand. And it was only finally solved in the late 90s by, again, a downward turn in the cycle that could persuade the workers themselves with inventory building up and red ink. Of course, they, they fudge the red ink numbers because they've put them out, especially in January and February when Chinese New Year's, there's always red ink, but it was so bad that they, had, they could implement the kinds of reforms uh, that they wanted to do, which was to let go and sell off most of the uh, state-owned enterprises, which they have done. And the book describes that, in fact, that was the result that they came up with. So I've been given the three-minute hook. Uh, I think that 
if you are aware of the facts in the book, uh, and if you keep in mind some of the facts and aren't in the book, the description of the Great Leap uh, of the Cultural Revolution happened in the context of uh, half a million U.S. troops in Vietnam uh, in the 1960s. Uh, the use of Chun Yun's effort to privatize farming in the early 1960s. Uh, that the idea of changing prices and price reform in the in direction of scarcity and market, that's a, that's a very important move. But you have to remember it has income effects, the economists would say. It affects those that are losers to those price forms. And they have the ability to conduct private violence. And if you, if you have to manage that kind of change, you need to be ready to deal with private violence. Uh, and that's what the Chinese have had to deal with. The changes in expectations, the unrealized expectations that come with the change in reforms that they have engineered. And I think they have engineered them, but much more subtly and carefully uh, than the book uh, says they have. Now, uh, towards the end of the book, this, this sort of disconnect between facts and the truth drawn from the facts gets stronger and stronger. Uh, and you, you get uh, reports of Deng's rectification campaigns that were beginning even before Mao died. Uh, and you have, uh, as I mentioned, facts about austerity and, and, and Deng's in September. When, when I, I was working in China a lot in 1972, and to me, Deng's walk in the South took what reforms had already started again in a big way, and the economy was recovering, that that added too much kerosene to the flame and caused China to overheat. So I thought that that was too much uh, at the time. Uh, but my, the, the, I want to get to the very end of the book, where it says the, that the Chinese economy has transformed itself because its leadership has used Chineseness. They've gone with Chinese practicality. Uh, and it spends quite a bit of time on the uh, theory of moral sentiments by Adam Smith, and that economics really needs to correct itself, that this disconnect, that economics today is so devoid from the connection with the real world and with humans. And I think, uh, I think that's an important point. And so I would encourage you that if you're aware of the facts and draw your own conclusions from the facts, and if you're aware of many of the facts that are left out that kind of undermine this idea of marginal uh, notions of change that weren't uh, desired by the reformers at the central government, if you can stay aware, aware of those as you move uh, through the book, uh, you get to the end where you get this critique of what can only be seen as a critique of a Hayekian simplistic idea that all you need is market prices and your economy will be there. And, 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 but if you buy or if you are drawn into, seduced by the helicopter generalizations about the price system and how it was, is the best thing since sliced bread, and don't see that the details of what's actually going on in China contradict those kinds of generalizations. It led me to think that, and here's my final thought, but I'm saying that in the Chinese economy, you had a process of reform that you had to proceed carefully with, because there were powerful forces in the party who were benefiting. They had privileges. Uh, they only got rid of the party secretary's ability to allocate housing in 1987 even though reforms had begun earlier than that. So you had to proceed carefully. You had to bring along a large group of your following and not upset them so much that they would become worried about what, in fact, actually did happen later on. And it occurs to me that the writers of this book have done that with those that have a strong faith in libertarianism, a strong faith in Hayekian price relationships, so that you, can't, you have to bring them along. You have to drop these statements in. You have to make statements about uh, and, and analysis, analytical conclusions about the marginal process. 
but when you get to the end, you have a, a, a diff very different picture and a criticism of just those very systems. So I congratulate uh, the authors. Uh, if you can stay to the end of the book and if you can keep an eye out for those facts, it's a, it's a great bargain. Well, why don't we let uh, Ning uh, take a few minutes to respond and then give Bert a couple minutes and then we open it up to uh, questions from the floor. I only have uh, maybe one or two comments. Um, yeah. 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 Right. Um, yeah, I only have two, one or two brief comments. Uh, first, we have to recognize this is a small book. Uh, again, I think it's 200 and 206 pages. To the epilogue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The 200 yeah. under 207 pages. So we cannot, uh, it's just impossible to uh, give you all the facts here in the book. Uh, but we do think the, the facts that we incorporated are critical for understanding how China became capitalist. Uh, the second point I want to make is this uh, relation between facts and the theory. Uh, I'm not, I don't claim to have any expertise to talking about philosophy of, of science, but I don't think we can derive our theories from facts. So that's the reason why you, you, know, you don't see, you know, the, the theoretical statements about how the markets operate are derived from the Chinese facts. Uh, since we really don't believe you know, this isn't a way to, to, get, to get theory. Um, but facts help us clarify our theoretical arguments, whether they uh, help us understand better what's going on on the ground. Uh, so that explains you know, the kind of disjuncture between facts and under the theoretical arguments. But uh, I will stop here. Well, thank you. I, I, I think you're at a disadvantage because I got to read your book, but you didn't get to read my comments before uh, this event. Uh, and I think uh, you're right. The philosophy of knowledge, uh, we really uh, can never know anything. We can only look at facts to disprove some theory that we thought we could use in a practical sense. And so there is that, uh, that need to go back and forth. Uh, and uh, I, I appreciate the difficulty of uh, presenting uh, detailed facts and uh, theoretical general conclusions. Uh, and I just, I think that as readers, we need to be aware of that tension that you bring up. So thank you very much. Okay, so I guess we can open it up. I'd, maybe I'll start with the first question um, uh, to Ning, actually. And the question is, how to move to a free market in ideas in China? Bert mentioned a number of powerful interest groups that want to protect their turf. And uh, how do you see the reform emerging over the next decade, let's say? This is a big question. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I have a definite answer. But I, you know, there, are, there are some signs in China that suggesting China are moving toward a free market for ideas, or taking steps toward that goal. Um, just recently, uh, New York University opened up a campus in Shanghai, and Duke is, has signed an agreement to opening up a, a campus in Queensland. Um, 
So gradually you are going to see the Chinese university system going to be opened up for competition with foreign universities and I hope with some domestic private uh, Chinese universities. Um, today, the, we spend a lot of time talking about the, the lack of reform in the Chinese uh, education, particularly in Chinese, in Chinese universities. So if you compare Chinese universities today, uh, it, it very much looks like the, the state-owned enterprises before reform. Uh, most of the other functions that the Chinese universities play are very much uh, controlled by the Ministry of Higher Education. Um, when the Chinese firms, the state-owned firms, gained more and more autonomy over the past 35 years, and some, of course, you know, bankrupt because they couldn't compete, uh, the Chinese universities are actually moving to the opposite direction. Uh, more and more controlled by, by the state, particularly compared with the Chinese universities during the early 1980s. Uh, but the, the, some positive sign. Another big factor, of course, is technological innovation. Uh, Weibo and other, I really I don't know much about those, Twitter and other kinds of uh, you know, technological innovation, they have enabled the Chinese to exercise political freedom in a way that we cannot possibly imagine before those technological innovation. So, um, and also this growing demand for uh, political participation in China is just amazing. So all those developments led us to be quite optimistic about China's prospect of moving toward a free market for ideas. Jim, if I could uh, quote the book, your book quotes Confucius and says, make people rich first, then educate them. And so you get, in, in my mind, uh, so many tensions uh, with political repercussions in China, and universities are such a, a, a fertile ground for demonstrations and political uh, opposition that spills out into the streets. When I was doing my dissertation in Seoul, I lived in Korea for a year and a half, they moved the whole university campus out of the city into a mountain valley. Uh, just so students, if they wanted to demonstrate, they could climb the cliffs. Uh, and, and you have, uh, therefore, once in a society can develop fully, when you make them rich, uh, the, some of the reasons for being worried about political activism on campuses is, is diminished. Uh, and I, I, I agree totally that with time, Chinese universities are going to flourish. Thank you. Good. Well, let's uh, get some questions. Uh from the audience, so just raise your hand and if you could identify yourself and keep the question short and uh, direct it to, uh, to Ning or, or Bert. Yep, on the back, you wanna get in the back there? The microphone back there? Yep. Uh, hello, uh, I'm from East West Center uh, in Hawaii, and uh, thank you for your talk. Actually, I would like to ask Professor Wang. Yeah, uh, how do you address the problem that in, in China, right now the Communist Party is admitting both people with uh, political view and those uh, with um, capital? So capitalists can actually end a com communist system, and the system is growing larger and larger right now, and we don't see a clue that it is allowing more uh, institutional reform and, or anything like that. 
So how do you how do you see that uh, as a, as an obstacle of um, free um, liberal liberalization of ideas? Thank you. The we have to recognize the fact, as we emphasized in the book, that the Chinese Communist Party is no longer communist anymore. Uh, they kept that title, but really you see what they do, what they think is, not, is different from the, what we understood as Communist Party here in the West. Um, the party now has more than, I think, 80 million members, a lot of them coming from college graduates, private entrepreneurs, and so on and so forth. Um, so, looking at the, the party membership, it's, it's, it's huge, it's pretty strong. But there is a big, I think, obstacle for the, for the party to move forward. Um, I think the party very much depends on the kind of system that Deng left. There was not much progress since Deng died. The system Deng, of course, inherited from Mao's time. But Deng and Mao, they were able to operate like what we call strong men. China, the Chinese political system today doesn't have that kind of a charismatic leader. So China has to build up institutions to support the kind of economy, the kind of market, market economy that has been emerged in China. In, in China. And that's going to take some time. Uh, but the com I think the party so far has not come to terms with the fact that the political re reality really changed. Uh, they, you know, as I said, that there was not much reform in the political system since Deng died. But that now there is a growing demand from both the, within the party and outside that political reform is needed for further economic reform. Um, I know Nick Lardy's here. Where's Nick? Uh, it's hard to see everybody out there, but uh, Nick, do you have any questions? Where's Nick? Right in the middle. Yeah. Uh, to elaborate a little bit more, your your difference of perspective from that of Huang Yashang about what happened in the 1990s. Why is it specifically that you disagree with his um, key hypothesis? Okay. Um, Huang made this argument that China in the 80s was more capitalistic and entrepreneurial. Uh, if I remember his book clearly, his argument was based on mainly the financial data, how difficult uh, the private sector uh, became to, for the private sector to, to get access to state credit. Uh, in the 1980s, uh, particularly for the uh, township and the village enterprises, for some time period, the local governments uh, really uh, uh, made the, the local uh, branches, banking branches, uh, give money to the township and the village enterprises. You saw, so that's the reason you, we have seen a huge expansion in the early 1980s in the, uh, in the uh, 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 development of the township and the village enterprises. Um, and then contrast that with what happened in the 1990s, it, become, it became more and more difficult for the private sector to get money from the state-owned uh, banks. That's, we, we don't debate that, that fact. 
But what Huang missed, I think, was what happened in the Chinese economy. After 192, you had uh, price reform, you had tax reform, then you had privatization of the uh, state-owned enterprises. That gradually paved the way for the rise of a common, common market in China. That did not exist in the 1980s. And that's the reason why regional competition in the 1980s created a lot of trade barriers. Uh, and that has been heavily criticized in the literature. But we wanted to emphasize that in the 1990s, because China started to have a national market, regional competition really became a transformative force in the economy and, finally, and ultimately leading China to a market economy by the end of the uh, 20th century. Yeah, how about uh, in the back there? Thank you. Give me the chance to ask a question. Actually, I have. You a want to identify yourself? Um, uh, I come from China. I work in Lhasa, Tibet. So I have a question uh, to uh, Mr. Kado. Uh, you mentioned in 1999, 50 million workers lost their jobs. If this is a fact, it really shocked me. So mm, where, where the numbers come from? And uh, another question I want to ask uh, Professor Wang. Um, what do you think about the mm, Lhasa and Tibetans' um, develop, uh, economic de de development? Because uh, Tibet, uh, Tibet nowadays is really sensitive. Yeah, thank you. Well, that figure of 50 million comes if you compare the state-owned employment uh, in 1996 with 2005. And I think I said between 1996 and 2005, 50 million uh, workers were no longer employed in the state sector. And that was part of an extraordinary restructuring of the state industrial sector. Uh, the a large majority of state-owned enterprises, the small and medium-sized ones, were basically sold either to their own workers or to investors or to teams uh, that had their savings. And workers were laid off. They triaged uh, the enterprises into three parts. Those that had a good product but had too much of a debt load. Those that had a good product but had too much labor. And those that had a lousy product. And they closed the ones with a lousy product. They sheared off a lot of labor from those that had too much labor. And they canceled the debts of those that had too much of a debt burden. So they're, they're, while the ownership or the control is probably the better word, the control changed uh, away from the state sector. They had also, not long before that, introduced company law, which it described uh, how enterprises should govern themselves. And in the process, they rejected many other models. And part of the process of, of sort of marginal transformation is that things happened, like the financial sector in Wenzhou, that weren't allowed to spread nationwide because they were too uh, damaging uh, and, and, and dysfunctional. Uh, and similarly, there's something called the Gufan Hazwajir, which is the shareholder cooperative system that came and percolated up for many township and village enterprises. That was decided was really not a good way to govern. And so the corporate law came in just as these firms were, uh, were laid off, laying off a lot of their workers. So they, you had quite a serious problem of relocating labor uh, in urban China from 1997 on. Uh, and what, uh, what happened was a lot of very small scale individual enterprises, uh, a lot of 
entrepreneurial explosions for whether it was restaurants or different other kind of the service sectors. It was a really serious problem, and they had a three-part social safety net to deal with it. You first had your shagong benefits, and then if you lost that, you got your unemployment benefits, and then if you uh, ran those out, you got the DBAL, the, the lowest level of income support that as a registered urban citizen you were allowed to get. Rural folks weren't, al weren't allowed to get any of that. So it was an extraordinary, wrenching change uh, that was engineered uh, by the reformers in the government. Let me just add oh, one comment one, uh, to what you just said about the uh, state-owned uh, enterprises and the big, huge layoff of, of uh, employees there. Um, what I think made that uh, transition less painful than the lumber might you know, suggest is that by that time, by the late 1990s, China already had a uh, uh, vibrant private sector. So those private firms were able to absorb some of the workers laid off from the state uh, enterprises. Uh, that's part of the reason why the Chinese government uh, you know, kept delaying the restructuring of the state-owned enterprises. And if you look at all other transition economies, they started by privatizing the state enterprises. Uh, China uh, didn't do that. Um, Going back to the, the question you asked about Lhasa, about Tibet, uh, I mean, Ch China, I totally agree with you that I'm very sympathetic to your uh, point of view that people there in Tibet, you know, don't have a, a free, what we call a free market for ideas. But that restriction, that, that restriction is not confined just to Tibet. Uh, in Beijing, you also don't have a free market for ideas. Um, this, of course, is, a, is as we argued in, in the book, China has to have a free market for ideas uh, to not only to you know, take care of some problems in the economy, but more for the social problems and for the political uh, problems. China badly needs a free market for ideas to allow people just to, you know, to, to talk, to debate, and to find out what are the, the issues and what are the kind of solutions that may emerge from a free exchange of ideas. Yeah, how about uh, over here? Uh, Fred Smith, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, this is, I guess, for Professor Keitel, right, probably. Uh, you, your remarks could be in construed, but I don't think they necessarily are, that you sort of endorse some form of national industrial policy. Um, I don't think it's surprising that Mandarin, Mandarins prefer central in, national industrial policy. It makes the Mandarin that powerful and gives them more power and prestige. And that's true in China, true in the United States, certainly. You have isolinders and so forth and industrial policy types, and certainly true in Europe, um, which means we really have two paths. We're trying to decide for ourselves and China, too, I guess, do we decentralize or centralize power further? We at CI have a phrase that we don't, and maybe this is a Chinese phrase too, we don't have to teach the grass to grow. We nearly need to move the rocks off the lawn. We need, to, we need economic liberalization, and that certainly calls for a, a role for the Mandarin, for the central political authorities. Which rocks do they carefully remove, in what order, and how fast? And if rocks, if grass was growing too fast, do they put some of them back? But that doesn't seem to call for an industrial policy. It calls for cautious liberalization. 
have I construed you as an industrial policy person wrongly, or are you actually a cautious liberalizer? Well, I, I think we need to be careful not to set up uh, extreme words and categorize people uh, or movements in just as one or the other. Uh, clearly, economic management and leadership is a blend of policies. Uh, your uh, AEI saying about grass and rocks, uh, I wonder what you did about seeds, uh, because you can get a lot of weeds, uh, and uh, they can choke uh, you out. Uh, but the, to the degree that you need some farsightedness, and you need investment that may have accomplishments or may fail, but which you need to do if, you're, if something is going to succeed, is clearly part of the United States market economy. A great many of the uh, wonderful advances in our commercial technologies came from 1950s, 1940s, 1930s uh, government programs that if you looked at them were probably extremely wasteful, uh, but that produced, if, you know, if not computers, uh, but they did produce computers and that kind of theory, then integrated circuits. Those were under, you could say what well, those were done by private firms, but they were under government contracts making that equipment for the Defense Secretary or for NASA. Uh, and that is one slice. There are all kinds of other ways that you can, to keep your analogy, have a well-functioning lawn. And uh, you, you need to fertilize it in the right place. If there's a drought, you need to add some water. Uh, and you know, if you go to places that don't mend their lawns, you have dust bowls. You know, live in, I live in Taiwan uh, before, you know, my room filled up with dust every day I had you, you, just because they didn't do lawns. So uh, I, I would just be careful not to categorize me as, a central plan, or as, a, as an industrial policy person. I, I'm a leadership person. I think you need both leadership and you need freedom for those that take advantage of the freedoms that leadership can make possible. Uh, but, it's not, and it's, but it's not a directed system, you do this and you do that. It creates an environment uh, and it also plants seeds. Probably have time for two more questions. How, you've been waiting back there, so way in the back there, and then we'll take somebody down, down in the front here. I'm uh, Mark DeWeaver. I'm a fellow uh, Paul Grave Macmillan author on the topic of the Chinese economy. And um, my question is for Professor Wong. Um, I've uh, spent a, a, a bit of time uh, going through the Chinese literature you mentioned on the problem of uh, blind and redundant investment. And I found that this literature um, generally puts the blame on the promotion system for local government officials, that the uh, local officials are, are going to be judged primarily on the basis of GDP growth within their jurisdiction. Um, they are... Uh, they are therefore competing with others in their peer group to have the highest GDP growth. And the uh, economic value of the type of investment that uh, they, they sponsor is only a secondary consideration. That the, what they're trying to do is generate as much GDP growth as they can within some three-year period that they're going to be in office because this is going to determine whether or not they can be promoted. Um, and also, of course, literature also mentions uh, competition for fiscal revenues as a factor as well. But neither of these things are, are really, um, uh, these, aren't, these aren't really market forces. These aren't, this isn't really market competition, if, if this account is correct. 
Um, this is a, a very different thing. It's a product of uh, how the Chinese uh, state and party bureaucracy function. Um, so what I'm, my question anyway, do you uh, disagree with this assessment uh, of the role of local officials, uh, particularly the, the process by which they get promoted in, um, in regional competition? And if you, I, I guess you do disagree, I, and um, if so, why? Thanks. First, I think it's it's an accurate description of the system. Uh, even though the Chinese government now trying to add more to that equation, so environment, for example, now is part of the uh, criteria to judge the local officials in the time of promotion. Um, that system, you know, works only when you have uh, what we call a, you know a common national market. Um, when firms, say, in one region have to compete for, with firms elsewhere, then the, the promotion of local economic development is contributing to the overall economic uh, uh, growth. But when, if you compare that situation with what happened during, during the 1980s, um, there was a, a, a tax code at that time. It said, it's called a product tax. That is, uh, uh, manufacturing, manufacturing firms had to pay product, product, product tax to the local authorities when they were in operation, no matter whether they make money or lose money. Uh, so that gave the kind of uh, you know, twisted incentive structure to the local authorities. They created a lot of firms, manufacturing firms, that really should not exist in a free market uh, setting. That's what happened in the 1980s, so that, that created a lot of problems at the macro level in terms of resource allocation and inflation and so on and so forth. What happened in the 1990s uh, was a series of reforms that led to uh, this national market, so under which all the firms are under the same kind of a market discipline. So if a firm do well in Shanghai, they will do well you know, elsewhere. So it's that kind of the change in the dynamics that led to, you know, uh, you know, Chinese economy became more and more, uh, uh, you know, market oriented during the 1990s. Okay, I think we're going to have to stop here because it's about 1:30, and the uh, the luncheon's going to be held upstairs. So let me um, just thank both the speakers very much uh, for their expertise and urge you to buy the book. And uh, you know, the Chinese respect old age, which is nice as I'm getting older. Uh, but uh, Ronald Coase, uh, being at 102, probably has great respect over there, and uh, they've actually named a center after him at uh, Zhejiang uh, University, which is one, where one of the free enterprise zones started, actually, uh, Center for the Study of the Economy. So if you visit Zhejiang, uh, you know, you might uh, see a statue of Ronald Coase. They already have a statue of Adam Smith uh, at Sufi in uh, Chengdu, uh, so that's uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Anyway, thank you very much. The uh, luncheon is going to be held upstairs, uh, so I hope you can visit Cato again and uh, have a safe trip home. <laughs>